to another episode of Inside the Recording Studio. I am Jody Whitesides, and with me as always is Mr. Chris Hellstrom. How are you today, Chris? Doing very well, Jody. Hoping you're the same, but uh, we're not alone here today. No, we are not. Who do we have with us? Randy Ojeda is with us. He is a music attorney from the great state of Florida in the land of the United yeah. States. I don't know so, if you could call Florida a great state, but it is a state. I'm in, trying in the, to be nice. In the United States. <laughs> well, you know, there's always the news blurb that starts with Florida man. Right. So, yes. Yes. I am indeed a Florida man. Well, there you go. Well, thank you so much for being with us here, Randy. Um, perhaps we can start and ask you to speak a little bit about yourself. As, as Jody mentioned, you're a music attorney. And maybe you can give us a little bit of your background and how you came into this crazy business. That's a good question. I am a music attorney, but before I was a music attorney, I was uh, a musician myself. So I played bass in a couple bands. And you so know, you understand this stuff <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. I, I've spent my I spent some time in the studio. You know, I was a musician growing up and in high school and college, and then. When I went to law school, I actually started managing artists, as one does when you're in law school. You know, you just, <laughs> just I, I was managing a rapper, actually. You know, I was living in Chicago, and there was like this big Chicago renaissance kind of happening in hip hop. You know, artists like Chance the Rapper and that sort of crew of, of musicians was coming up. And I was, I was friends with a lot of people kind of within that team. So I started managing and then... From management, I went, I did A&R for a company called Symphonic Distribution, which is a major music distributor. I ran a label. I, you know, I'd kind of put, I kind of put my hat in to all the rings that I could within the music industry and actually kind of stayed away from law for a little while. So I actually didn't take the bar right away. I went and tried to pursue management and, and my other interests first. And then it was actually during the pandemic that I realized, well, if I was ever going to rededicate myself to a certain practice and study for the bar exam and take it, the pandemic was a great time to do so because I went from being on the road all the time and going to LA or New York or different places to just sitting at home. So it's like that that was a great time to study and do my thing and reintroduce myself as a music attorney once I passed the bar and had the license to do so. So I think I definitely have a unique path to the law. You know, I didn't go straight from law school into this. I actually worked in the music industry for several years wearing other hats before I became a lawyer. So I think I, I have a pretty good perspective that a lot of lawyers don't have, you know, being in the trenches with artists and doing the thing from the ground up. So it gives me a different different point of view than most music attorneys have. You almost sound a little bit like the character from Catch Me If You Can. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how long it took you to study and pass the bar, but it sounds like it wasn't as long as what some people might do. Or am I wrong? Yeah. It was definitely took a lot of dedication. And like I said, it was during the pandemic, so I didn't have anything else to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there, was, there was no shows to go to. Right. You know, there was no vacations to go on. It was just me sitting at home with my books. And I definitely I'm, I'm making it sound easier than it was. But trust me, it was it was a lot of work and a lot of. Uh, a lot of dedication and a lot of long hours of studying and getting my feet back into it, you know, because well, I, I was gone from, you know, the, the music industry stuff I know really well. It was just the actual practical law stuff. I had to go back and sort of reteach myself. So did you study law prior? I did. Yeah, I went to law oh, school. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I was in law school when I started managing artists and I just realized like, you know, at the time, I was more into the management side than I was the legal side. And I was like, let me just keep doing management. You know, I had a, a lot of clients that were doing really well. You know, I started this company called Cigar City Management that at its peak had 10 bands on our roster. And all 10 bands were touring 150, 200 days out of the year. It was like we were heavy touring, lots of punk bands, heavy metal bands. Hurting and cats. I just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really was like herding cats. Yeah. So I just kind of did that. Then the pandemic happened and suddenly all those bands aren't on the road anymore. So I needed right. needed something else to do. And I'd already had the background in law. I'd already went to law school and something I always wanted to do, but I hadn't seen the vision yet. Now I, I definitely do. And I'm, I'm eternally grateful that I did what I did and that I'm doing what I'm doing now. You know, Awesome. That's interesting. I was going to say, because you, you said you went into law initially before you had the 
the dream or, or the vision, so to speak, to, to go into doing what you're doing right now. How did that differ when you sort of made that connection that that's what you wanted to do? Was there more of a focus on contracts and things or are there specific things that you had to go through just for as a music attorney as opposed to hesitate to use the term but like run-of-the-mill attorney that, that we, yeah yeah we, we just would know um when i was in law school i didn't realize that i could be a music attorney i hadn't really met any music attorneys because it's a pretty small community you know so hmm. i didn't think it, i didn't think i could merge my passions of law and music together so i really wanted to be more of just a typical corporate attorney but the music I, i'm sure you guys know it's like the music takes you you know and the, you can't sure you can't give it up. <laughs> you so, don't say. <laughs> um, yeah. So then once I was in the industry and I was managing and I was working A&R and I was wearing the different hats that I spoke of, that's when I started to meet music attorneys. And I was like, man, I can do what they're doing. Like I have the, the skill set, I have the knowledge, and now I have the industry experience. So it was like a light bulb just kind of clicked. And I realized like I can totally do this and make this my career. You never played attorney to both sides at any given time then. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, sometimes people will choose an attorney that's already representing something else. And if the attorney is on the up and up, they're going to say, I can't represent you because I'm representing the other side, so to speak. And with music, yeah, yeah. especially in today's environment, a lot of things get really shifty with how things are progressing in all kinds of ways. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. No, and there's definitely been situations where I've had to pass on something because I was already working with the other side, you know, if you will. Mm -hmm. Or um, there's a couple other attorneys that I know really well that I trust who, when that situation happens, I'll refer to them and, and say, hey, you know, I can't represent you because I'm representing the record label. But, you know, my friend here, he, he can represent you. The other way uh, it happens as well, where people will refer me out because they're representing, you know, there's a conflict of interest on their side. Definitely happens a lot because it is a very small industry, surprisingly. So oh, yeah. it's a very small community. There's only so many labels. There's only so many management companies. There's only so many artists. Uh, there's a lot of artists. But, <laughs> <you know. laughs> yeah. Well, somebody was predicting that the amount of artists by 2030, I think it was, would be 1 billion, which is boggling wow. of the mind, mainly because the industry technically feels so small at least in the U.S., and yeah. to have the global situation reach essentially one-seventh of the population, I think, as it is right now, that's nuts. That me. is. Yeah. Well, just the amount of music that is released on a daily basis, you know, these days is it's mind-boggling to comprehend. Mm -hmm. And speaking yeah. of the amount being released – the first item on our little list of things to ask about a little bit is performance rights. And mm. more specifically, as a performer on a track itself, being that the U.S. is technically way behind would be a good way of saying it from pretty much what is it every country but three or four and the U.S. is one of those three or four where they do not generally pay the performer on a track unless it's digital broadcast, if I'm not mistaken, through sound exchange. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. That is correct. How do you feel about that? I wish performers would get more of their fair share. Being a, a performer on a record is like you're you're a big part of what makes the track the track. You know, sure. I, I definitely, in this industry, it's all about what you can negotiate, right? So definitely there's certain performers that are getting credit and are getting paid and are, are getting royalties from what they're performing on, but that's not the case for everybody. And that's that's not necessarily the standard. I mean, typically you're a performer, you're typically going to be a work for hire. So you'll get paid a flat fee for your time in the studio. And uh -huh. that's kind of it. You're not typically going to get royalties after the fact, or you're not typically going to see revenue from the track upon its release, even though you are somebody that played on it. And that's um, generally speaking for U.S. artists. And uh, what are the other two or three countries that don't do that as well? Do you know? I, I don't know offhand, actually. So, um, But the vast yeah. majority of the rest of the world, if you're represented in the U.K. or the Netherlands or some other country, they take care of their artists. You are credited and you are paid for every time that performance happens, whether it's digital or analog. 
It's the U.S. where right. it's currently only digital, if I'm not mistaken, with digital broadcasting. So that's digital radio and cable, I believe, with sound exchange. And there's no other entity yeah. that collects and, for that in the U.S. No, and sound exchange is a sound exchange is a super important part of the puzzle, especially nowadays, because I mean, you're talking digital royalties. I mean, that's we live in a digital world. You yes. know, that's where that's where a lot of the royalties are coming from. That's one thing when I work with producers and featured artists and and somebody that's, you know, on a track, guest solo or, you know, a guest performer or something like that. I, I try to make sure that they get what's called a sound exchange letter of direction. Mm-hmm. And that basically tells sound exchange that, hey, this song, yes, the main artist has 95% of it, but 5% of it goes to this guy who played trombone or whatever, right. <laughs> you know, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. It's it's super important if you're an artist and you're you're working with somebody else in that capacity to get a letter of direction from the artist to sound exchange and make sure it actually gets submitted to sound exchange so that you're collecting on all the possible royalties that you could get. Which is smart. I think I think it speaks a little bit just to backtrack somewhat in the story before one would find themselves in in a situation that they're performing on a an artist track. I think the reality is that a lot of artists, they don't even think about this stuff until they get screwed once or twice and an artist blows up and they go, hey, I actually played on that, but you made, you were just happy to be there at the session at the time. So what's your recommendation to artists like when they start getting into this just getting going in their career at what stage do you envision that they actually need to sit down and and make sure that they get the rights or keep the rights that they are entitled to and perhaps go through an attorney because i think most people think that's something that just should happen in the upper echelon of the industry type of thing yeah, and that's a that's a pretty common misconception because I think uh, a lot of artists, because they're not in the upper echelon, like you said, like they're hesitant to bring paperwork out, you know, or they, they might just be friends with the artist, so they don't want to ruffle feathers or they don't want to seem uncool because they're trying to get paperwork done. But nobody wants to be that uncool guy, but it is it is necessary. It's a hundred percent necessary at the earliest stage that you can to get things in writing. I always tell people, even if you're just jotting something down on a napkin that says, I get 50%, you get 50%, whatever it is, you don't necessarily need an attorney that early on, although it helps. But as long as you have some kind of agreement between you and whoever you're collaborating with, that's going to go a long way towards resolving issues that could arise down the line. It's just good to set expectations up up front, you know. In in light of you saying that, are you referring more to a songwriter's split sheet or are you referring to the idea of I'm collaborating with you as a producer, you're collaborating with me as a producer, and we're talking some other type of split? Because the songwriting split sheet with the songwriter and the publishers that all are involved with a song from its inception would be different from a producer's agreement, correct? Yeah, I'm talking about both, honestly. Okay. Okay. You know, I think I, you definitely need the split sheet from the songwriter side, but you also need something for the master side. And hopefully I'm not getting too into into the weeds here, but... Oh, please do. Yeah. <laughs> That's the whole yeah. point yeah. of getting yeah, out here. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So there, I mean, obviously there's there's two sides to every song. So there's the composition, you know, the songwriting side. That's what you need, you know, your standard songwriter split sheet for. But then there's the master side or the actual sound recording. And that's typically where producers get a percentage of the master recording because they're physically manipulating the sound itself, if that makes sense. Sure. So you definitely need both. If you're a producer, you need some kind of agreement that says, you know, I'm getting... X amount of dollars plus whatever percentage you're able to negotiate off the master. And that's where you're going to see your money come back because that's where you're getting paid. More often than the upfront. Well, it depends actually yeah. on the artist and how big a push they get from whatever environment that they're in in reality. Yeah. And you need to be careful as a producer because the upfront money oftentimes, more often than not, the label is going to see that upfront money as an advance and not just a fee. So typically, let's say you get a $1,000 advance off of a record, then you need to earn $1,000 before you start seeing money because you got to pay back that $1,000 that 
is an advance as opposed to a fee. So oftentimes when I'm representing a producer, I try to massage the, the language so that it's not an advance and it's actually just a fee. And then the producer can start making money from the very beginning as opposed to waiting for that money to recoup. Which could take never. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could be could be forever. You could never never see any money from a from a record. I think that's a, that's a common thing that the public will have when they're thinking about artists and they think, oh, they they have to be making all of this money, right? But you know, they have a, a record deal and they don't realize that you might start out six or sometimes even seven figures in debt that you need to make up before you start seeing penny one. So, yeah. It, and you need to be very careful with that because a lot of times part of the label game, especially with major labels, is they want to keep you in debt. So they're going to keep piling on advance fees and say like, oh, well, we're paying for this recording, we're paying for this marketing, we're paying for this, we're paying for that. And next thing you know, you're even further in the hole and you're never going to you're never going to see money. And so even be careful. Uh, yeah. Another thing I just wanted to point out, you mentioned there that when you're starting and making a contract, even if we're just friends, there's, I think, a really common thing where, where people start working together and they think, oh, we're, we're just buddies. We're, we'll be fine. We don't need to write anything down. But that dynamic can change in a hurry when money starts getting involved. Especially right. if it's well, a lot of money that starts coming in and something gets real popular. Well, especially them. But I would say even if the money is not huge. And, you know, you don't necessarily get into the Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak story here, right? But it, <laughs> how, you know, when you're supposed to just share your take of what you got and you don't have a contract, the temptation there for most people, I think, oh, why am I giving up $500 out of this thousand? You know, that's not necessarily life-changing money, but that dynamic changes really quickly, I think, for a lot of people when they're the ones that are either not receiving or are being, air quote here, forced to pay their, their partner, right? So it, it is an unfortunate thing, but as soon as money starts getting involved, dynamics change. So it really helps to have stuff in writing. And it becomes an ego thing, you know, like people are like, oh, well, this is my song or this is my track or whatever. So they, right. don't, they don't feel like they need to pay their collaborators or share their cut because the ego gets in the way. But that's that's even even more reason why, especially if you're friends, you need a deal. You need a, an agreement put together. For sure. Absolutely. Before we start rolling here, I mentioned an episode that we talked about a while back. That is one of copyright infringement, where there were all sorts. I know that when Jody and I were going through music school, there were all these sort of rumors that were being thrown around that you could ch or you can mimic seven notes of a song and get away with it. Yeah. Where it's like, what are you talking about? Doesn't make any kind of sense. But when it comes to that's from the writing standpoint, by the way, that wasn't for like actually sampling any piece of any audio. That was a writing thing. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for pointing that out, Jody. But what can you tell us when it comes to right? Copyright infringement. I, I'm pretty sure I know what you're going to say, right? But when should artists start thinking about that as they're writing? I mean, immediately. I mean, right away. You know, if you're if you're sampling anything or if you're taking heavy, let's say, heavy inspiration from another song. Well, that's a good expression. <laughs> heavy inspiration. Heavy inspiration. I'm going to have to steal that. <laughs> Go for it. It's yours. Right. Yeah. You know. Anytime, I mean, basically from the very beginning, you should be aware, especially depending on the type of music that you're making. I mean, this is obviously very prominent, like in hip hop or electronic music where sampling is such a big part of the medium. Um, you should be very careful about copyright infringement. And just because you sampled something from 1925 and nobody's ever going to hear, nobody's ever going to notice it or whatever, you know, you might think that, but some publisher somewhere. <laughs> yeah, somebody somewhere owns the rights to to everything. It's uh, it's better to to kind of do your due diligence up front, and if you are sampling, get those samples cleared by whoever owns the rights to them, or just don't use them. Do something else instead of sampling. Right, which is easier said than done. And going back to the concept of maybe it's not sampled, but heavily influenced by the idea that was floated for a lot of things. It was 
kind of ridiculous in, in terms of the seven note theory on a melody. What's the reality of that? Yeah. I mean, I think the reality of it is it depends, mm -hmm. you know, I hate to use the typical lawyer answer that it depends, but it really does. I mean, I don't think the seven note thing is like a hard and fast rule when it comes to the courts. I think it's, it's subjective and it's, it, it really depends on the situation. How much more subjective can it get when the family of Marvin Gaye is mm -hmm. suing over a vibe that is insanity. Right. And yeah. then they won. No, that is. That's honestly kind of scary for me, you know. That's extremely see, scary for everybody. <laughs> yeah, to see that happen. I didn't it, it was kind of a, a strange case and I, I couldn't believe that, yeah, you could you could win over a vibe, feeling a mood, but that's that's the subjectivity right there. You mm -hmm. know, it's like it could be two notes that are the same but those two notes are what creates the whole melody or creates the whole feel of the song and jaws. suddenly you know <laughs> it's like that's a great example right there yeah jaws and when you hear those couple notes it's like wow that's uh you know that's iconic so you know mm -hmm. it uh it's an interesting time. Well, what's funny is I talk to a lot of artists and what they say is they're like, well, if I get sued, that's a good thing, right? Because that means my song is popular, you know? <laughs> I, I guess I see that argument, but, mm -hmm. you know, you don't want your one song that blows up to be the one that, you know, they end up taking all the rights away from you. And then you make no money in the interim. And then you make nothing. And, and yes, you yes, you you might gain some notoriety as the artist that got sued, but is it really worth it at the end of the day? Or do you, would you rather just have something blow up on its own merits and, and, and keep your rights? You know? Have you represented any artists where this has happened? Thankfully, no. Yeah. It's not something I've, I've had to deal with, which, you know, knock on wood is, uh, <laughs> is hopefully it stays that way. Right. Yeah. Well, maybe they're taking your advice and doing it the right way from the get go. You'd be surprised. There's a lot of people not taking my advice and they just they've just kind of flown under the radar so far. Yeesh. I, I had an I had an artist that I was representing that I'm not gonna say his name, I'm not gonna say what he sampled, but he sampled a very, very prominent song, didn't really disguise it at all, just went with it. And he ended up releasing it, uploading it to Spotify and Apple and YouTube and everything. And YouTube was actually the only one that caught it and said, hey, this is copyright infringement. So he it, it got taken down off of YouTube, but it's still on Spotify and Apple Music. And it's I, I warned him against it, but he put it out anyways. And well, rather at interesting. that point, I just say, hey, call me again in a couple of years when, when you know, the rights holder comes, comes knocking. Because you know? <laughs> <laughs> that will eventually happen. YouTube will notify the rights yeah. holder. I've got yeah. notifications on it, which is strange to me. I've had a couple of songs where oddly enough, I control the rights to pretty much everything I've done as an artist, as a production music person, it's a different story depending on who's representing what catalog. But I have one song that I own that in Spain, the publishing and writing entity there thinks somebody else owns it. And I'm not sure how that happened. And I'm still fighting YouTube over that. It's like, I own my rights worldwide. I don't know why you don't think I own my song. But yeah. it's only in Spain, I think, where I'm having this issue with one particular song for my own catalog. That's that's really interesting. We should definitely talk more about that after the show. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'd have <laughs> to be, check up on it because it's been at least six months since I've last checked in on how that's all panning out. But uh, Yeah, that's interesting. But the part of it hmm. is, and I would, I'm a little bit of a, maybe a basket case with how I've been working with my own catalog in that I do all my own registrations with my PRO and my publishing name. And I think it takes care of with the way I do it with CSAC, who I'm represented by. They also deal with the Canadian side of things, even though CSAC is not in Canada. I think I have a connection mm -hmm. somehow to deal with the registrations there. Anything outside the U.S. and Canada, I'm represented by a sub-publishing agreement that deals with it worldwide for everything else yeah. but America and Canada. And I don't know if it's their registration that triggered that for everything else worldwide, even though mm. they know when they do their registrations, they tell the entities, he owns his stuff, he does it in the U.S., don't mark it. 
is my understanding. But for some reason, one song triggered it in Spain. Yeah, that's really that's really weird. And you, you are right. Like it is a sub-publishing agreement and, and CSAC and BMI, ASCAP, they have sub-publishing agreements with the entities across the across the world right um, but to do the actual so, registrations takes a lot longer than you would anticipate so having yeah an administrative publishing entity do it for you can be very helpful absolutely absolutely and that's where a pub admin deal makes sense for a lot of people especially if you have a large catalog that you're representing mm -hmm. you know yeah totally yeah i was going to go back a little bit because you mentioned um an artist not by name remains anonymous, but when heavy sampling is involved. Now, another issue that I hear sometimes murmur up when it comes to doing uh, production music is that issues that, that arise from samples that are being used, not necessarily from recorded catalog, but from services like Splice or whatever. Some production music houses will stay away from those simply because they can have implications down the line where artists might ask for rights or cuts of whatever piece of music has been performed. What do you think is the implication, or where are we now, as we should say, as, as we're you know recording this early 2024? Uh, what are the rules on that, and what implications do you see that where people actually using sample libraries as part of their production that could sometimes get them in hot water. Yeah, I think you just need to be very careful with Splice and other sample libraries just because every sample has, a, has an individual agreement that could vary depending on what you're sampling. So I could see why a production house or a, a sync library wouldn't want something that comes from a sample library because you're right that the artist can sort of take that back at any time depending on what the deal is i'm always a little weary of that you know i talk to some producers that send me over their splice agreements and they're all different you know sometimes you're you're leasing out the right to use a sample sometimes you're buying it outright you know sometimes you're it's just a license sometimes you're actually owning it it's just it, it really depends on the specific sample you know, so there could so, I, it could. I'm sorry to interrupt you. So th there could actually be time limits on the use of said sample. Absolutely, absolutely, and, that's, and that's that's why you need to be very <laughs> careful in reading those agreements to make sure you're doing what you're doing. And, and nobody does that, of course, unless you're an attorney and it's your job, right? Or you're hiring an attorney to look right. it over exactly. You know, so yeah, I'd be very careful. So to speak on that. I had a uh, a client who was a recording engineer and he's in the studio with an artist and they actually purchased a, a beat from one of those sample libraries or beat libraries or whatever. And it ended up that because it was the engineer who actually purchased it, he owned the rights to use it and not the artist. So we had to we had Oops. to reach out. Yes, yes. We had to reach out to the original beat creator, you know, through this this library and and you know switch the rights over and it, it became a whole issue. But that's exactly what I mean. Like you really need to be careful with these agreements because just because he was the person that downloaded it and paid from his card or whatever legally, he, he held was all the, the one cards. That had the rights. <laughs> he exactly he had the rights to it. Obviously, that's that's not what you want as an artist. You want you want to own the rights yourself and not your engineer, you know. <laughs> so so that was that's the kind of situation where I mean, like, be very careful looking at the fine print whenever you're taking music from from a public library, you know, or private library. In that regard, speaking of libraries. Yeah. A lot of people are told go put your music into something like the Getty image version of a music library. Mm -hmm. The one that comes to mind, I believe is pump audio. I don't even know if they're still around. Hmm. And I remember a bunch of years ago attending the very first time I was actually made aware of the California copyright conference was because CSAC had brought me in to, speak to the concepts of dealing with libraries because I had done a lot of production music. And up to that point, most of my dealings were with a library that would pay you money up front to produce a track 
they would own the publishing, you would keep your writing, but they own the master. Or some of them would split the master with you, depending on how cool they were with their agreement. Mm -hmm. And I got a lot of uses out of music that I did that way. And then I worked with a co-writer who really wanted to put things in with stuff like Pump Audio. And having been a speaker at the California Copyright Conference and also included people that were the heads of the music departments of like NBC, CBS, ABC, and whatnot, they were all saying at that time, and this was roughly 15 years ago, do not put your music in places like that because we are no longer taking music to use in our shows from places like that. And the reason they were saying it is because those end up being what people would call a retitle. And while some of them say, we don't really retitle, but what they do is they keep your title and then they stack some three-letter, four-letter code or the name of their business onto your title, and that's still a retitle. And they tell you, yeah. you keep the rights to your music, which of course you do, but then you don't own your retitle, so to speak. And when they have four or five retitle companies sending them music, they get harebrained because somebody goes, well, you took our song, but it came from over yeah. here. And then it becomes a big legal fight. And that's why they wanted to wash their hands of it. Is that still something that you see going on or is that really washed out at this point? How is that working? Yeah, I think it's definitely gone out of fashion a little bit. The libraries like that, I think because people have sort of wisened up to the retitling thing, mm -hmm. but it definitely depends on the entity too. Like I know, again, don't want to say names, but I had a client who got a song as a, uh, a walkout music or theme song for a professional wrestler. Mm -hmm. And the wrestling company, who shall remain nameless, WWE, um, <laughs> they, they, re, they basically just retitled the song and took the publishing, took everything. And like my client basically got a one-time fee for his song. And then now the song's owned by WWE. And even the, the release of the song onto the internet is the artist's name is WWE. It's not, oh. uh, it's not my client's name, you know? Ouch. So yeah. And, but that's how they do it for all their theme music because they don't want to pay licensing fees. Oh, hell no. They want to keep the rights. They want to keep the rights. Exactly. So I for all intents and purposes, it's basically an original song that they, that they have now, you know, right. because it's retitled, it's republished, it's re-registered and it's a totally different thing. I can think of two instances in my past where this essentially happened. One, as I mentioned, co-writer wanted to have song in a non-exclusive library in a sense. Somehow that song got picked up by a major movie. The version that he gave them was a sped up version of the song that I absolutely loathed. And I don't mean like the new TikTok thing where they speed it up like a 33 RPM to a 45 RPM thing. I'm talking yeah, about it now. was a few BPM. I thought it made my voice sound like ass, but they loved the song and it fit perfectly for the movie. So when they came to me saying, hey, we need a wave because he sent the MP3, and I had spaced off the fact that this was a sped up version. I was like, oh, you want this version of the song? Fine, we're going to do the deal. It's all great. Here's the wave version. And I get a call 30 minutes later. This version is not the same BPM. Because <laughs> they had already cut it to the film. Or they sure. had cut the film to it. The guy asked me, and I, suddenly it dawns on me, like, oh. And I tell him, I'm sorry, I goofed up. The version that you got is from the co-writer. I knew he wanted a sped up version. And the guy immediately cuts me off. And he goes, that's okay. We want to recut the film because we like the way it sounds better in the wave that you gave us. Not because it's a wave, but because my voice sounded better. And they went with go. that. Justice. So that was, and that worked out in my favor, fortunately for that, because not only did that happen, it ended up getting us the proper credit so that we, with our title of the song and not the retitle version, and my name as the artist, went on it without the concept of the non-exclusive thing happening. So that was an accident that worked in my favor just because of a BPM shift. That's, wow. And on another yeah, one, yes, it's crazy, right? So, and then on another yeah. one, I had the theme to a show on AMC. They wanted 
initially to have one theme across multiple versions of this show. It was almost going to be like cops again. Then at the last minute, they decided they changed their minds and they gave me the option of creating a new version for each version of the show. And they couldn't tell me what they wanted. And I kept giving them version after version after version of different ideas of what they wanted. And eventually they got so into this that I started getting so frustrated saying, I think you need to stick with the original because you can't tell me what you want and I can't deliver what you can't decide. What they yeah. ended up doing was going with an editor's version of this, like the show editor did a scaled back version of just bass and drums on a new version of the song. And it was so reminiscent of mine that I wanted to sue, but at the same time, it's like, they're still using my version on the other version of the show. And if I do this, I'm probably getting yanked all the way around. So I bit my tongue and let them do that. But it was really frustrating mm. because it sounded like my bass and drums. Cause I gave them yeah. so many options of what they wanted and they probably re-edited it to the fact, but I couldn't prove that they sampled it or they did whatever. So I didn't pursue it, but it's just one of those things where it's like, you do have to be very careful in these situations. And then Absolutely. of course, karma hit them. They did something screwy and they got pulled off the air for everywhere they went. <laughs> so oh, there well. you go. Like I said, justice. Right? Well, I don't know if it's justice because that was good money that was coming my way for a good period of years. And then true, it's like true. gone. Yeah. So. Wow. We've been talking about some real life examples here and we're casually throwing around terms like writer's share and publisher's share. I remember this was something that was really confusing to me when I started out. I'm hoping that maybe you can drill down a little bit on what that actually means for people that are listening that may not be that familiar with what that actually is when it comes to owning a song. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I talked earlier about the two sides, right? The composition and then the master recording. So the composition side, which is the actual song, the melody, the lyrics, the, the underlying composition within the song, that also breaks down into two different sections. So there's the writer's share, which is goes to the songwriter, him or herself. And then there's the publisher's share, which goes to that songwriter's actual publisher. And you can be your own publisher, so you don't necessarily need an outside publisher, but there, there can be benefits to having a publisher on the table. One of the things we touched on is a publisher will register your work all over the world and also keep track of ex making sure you're you're collecting on all those revenues and exploiting the song in a way that that makes you money. Obviously, the publisher wants to make money off of the song. So there can be benefits to having a publisher, but you don't necessarily need one. And I, I always caution artists to hold on to your publishing as long as possible, because if you can build up a library, your work is going to be much more valuable in the long run because you have a catalog that you can sell. And then that's when you want to go to a publisher and say, hey, I have this catalog of all these works. Their songs have been placed in movies and TV shows and here and there. You know, I had this one big hit, whatever it is. Then that's when you can actually negotiate a much better deal with a publishing company and go in there. So I, I guess I went a little off the oh, question. Oh, no, no, no. That's a great way of sta <laughs> but, stating it. And as I kind of hinted at, I have a catalog and I represent two sides of myself. One is an artist and I have also a publishing entity that deals with production music stuff. And not all of the production music that I've done is represented by exclusive libraries. Some of it is my own library and it's a lot. I have yeah. 60 discs of my own production music, which is a lot. Wow. To that end, I have to thank Frank Zappa for setting me on the path that you just discussed of saying, own your publishing for as long as you can. Yes. Mainly because Frank Zappa talked about it when I was getting started. He was, that was, that was his thing. And yeah. I followed that example. Now it didn't always help me, but I now control a very sizable catalog because of it. Yeah. And it definitely helps to own that catalog because you, you can control where things end up and where, where songs are getting placed and, but like you said, it, it can hurt you at times because you might be giving up some opportunities that a larger publisher could bring to the table that you can't get yourself, you know? So there's, there's pros and cons to both, but I agree. Whatever Frank Zappa says, I'm, I'm with that. <laughs> <laughs> Frank's word is Bible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was given the 
advice one time when I was working, doing some co-writing and with a producer who was doing some advice or giving some advice to us. And because I was very much of the same mindset, and I still am to, to a little bit lesser degree, that you should never, ever, ever give up your publishing, right? Just hold on to your publishing. But he said, well, yeah, you might be giving up your publishing, but 50% of something is a whole lot better than 100% of That's nothing. That's true. So if you have that opportunity, it's not, I would say, you have to weigh the pros and cons and just realize that if it is a good enough opportunity, you know, it, it can be financially rewarding as opposed to on principle sitting on all your rights and not making anything of it. So that's just the thing that I would encourage people to kind of consider as well, right? Well, of course. Not to get steamrolled, but I want to just play devil's advocate there where, like you hinted at, it can make you leave a lot of money on the table. Well, Well, absolutely. Some money on the table. Speaking of leaving a lot of money on the table, or actually maybe taking a whole lot of it off, in the last couple of years, we saw a lot of bands like Imagine Dragons and other huge names, The Killers, selling off not only their publishing, but my understanding is also the writing share to companies mm-hmm. like Hypnosis and yep. is it Blackstone, I think. Those companies are buying up rights like left, right, and center for gigantic sums of money. And I have to imagine that some of those artists are laughing all the way to the bank because they're not going to make that money back. It's going to take forever to make it back. Yeah. Am I wrong? No, and I think it, obviously if somebody comes with, you know, somebody – opens the dump truck full of money, drops it at your doorstep, that's something to consider. But and the I thing now for, is like those bands, they don't have any say as to where those songs go, period. Exactly. Because yeah. they don't have and the that, writing and they don't have the publishing. Right. But they got the money, they cashed out. You yeah. Know? So it's like, <laughs> it's with what's what's important to you. You know, what do you, are you okay with your, your songs being owned by somebody else in exchange for a large sum of money? Maybe you are, you know. Mm-hmm. But this is also why you absolutely need a music attorney or somebody to look over these deals because you could end up in a situation where where you're like you said you're you you're losing your your writer share you're losing your publisher share you sometimes you're losing your master rights i mean whatever rights you have could be gone potentially forever whereas some smarter deals would have the rights revert back to you at some point so maybe you're you know you're going to sell your publishing rights for 20 years or something but then in the future that's going to come back and 20 years might seem like a long time but i've definitely worked with children of artists who have passed away and now their estate and their kids are are wondering where's this money what are we entitled to Mm -hmm. and if you have reversions in your contract i mean that can set up your your family and your you know your your future livelihood i i can't remember the last time they changed copyright law but i assume it hasn't been changed for a good 10 years at least due to the fact that steamboat willie has just gone public domain and disney was obviously the biggest proponent for making copyright lengths go a lot longer. Is it still the life of the artist plus 20 years or is it 70 years? 70 years. So it's life of artist plus 70 years. That's humongous. It's a long, it's a long time. It's a real long time. You know, so for people to, for people to own those, right. You know, an outside company to own that right is pretty extreme. It can be. And I'm, I'm guessing that, when they're like hypnosis is paying 150 million for the catalog of imagine dragons they're not getting that catalog back there's no way i would i would assume not yeah. you know there's probably some kind of buyout provision where like if imagine dragons wants to pay 400 million to get it back they probably could you know <laughs> we're gonna <laughs> make sure it's like profit <laughs> that's what i'm saying i'm sure it's an absurd amount of money to get those rights back right you know wow that's yeah. just crazy yeah. on the episode that we did have the artist in question that sent us the request for doing an episode about certain things that are have legal rights to them the i think the question came down to if you could essentially sample a snare sound and not have to pay for it in a sense. My understanding, and I'm not a lawyer like you, is that no matter what you sample, if it is someone else's sound recording, 
whether it is registered with the Library of Congress or not, they own that sound recording. Whether they can sue you for it is an entirely different thing. Am I mistaken in right. that? You know, the second you create a sound, it's technically your intellectual property. Mm -hmm. Now, to enforce those rights, you do need to register them with the Copyright Office. Right. You know, so you might not be able to actually sue on something, but it technically is your work, you know, mm -hmm. just by the nature of you creating it. You know, like I could sing a sing a little ditty right now and it would belong to me. Of course. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't be able to enforce that unless it unless I'm actually copywriting the material and and you know a good little tidbit for for copywriting you know a lot of artists think that it's not necessary to copyright your work because you sort of get de facto intellectual property rights just by creating it on your own but mm -hmm. the difference can be a lot of money so if you already have something registered with the copyright office and then somebody takes it you get what's called statutory damages which can be over $250,000, like just for like a second of a snare sample. Whereas if you don't have that, that copyright registered, you can only sue on what's called actual damages. Right. So if the song got a million streams or what, what have you, you would only get paid on the actual money that the, the person made off of your sample, as opposed to getting that money plus statutory damages, which, like I said, could be over $250,000. Is it three you times know, the so. amount of damages or is it some other, is it, or am I mistaken on that? It depends. Okay. It depends. Gotcha. But that, that's, that's a, a perfect example of why I highly recommend doing the copyright. copywriting all your work. Yeah. And they made it, they made it much easier to copyright albums now. So before you used to have to literally individually copyright every single track, but in the last like five to ten years they they changed it where you can copyright a whole album at once and it just streamlines the whole process and, and makes it well the know, library much Cong easier. congress also initially when it was getting the website going and i know this from personal experience they made it so that you could upload everything as an mp3 along with your artwork that had the album and of course you had to individually title everything that was going in on the quote-unquote album Right. They also at that time made it cheaper. So it was more expensive to send physical mail and a CD to do your SR right. copyright in, or if you're registering both the publishing side, writing publishing side, which uh, is a PA form, and then you had your sound recording form. You did both or you did one or the other. Some people only do the PA. Some people do only the SR. I recommend doing both, but it's expensive. And even I now with the online well. version yeah. is now more expensive than it used to be in paper and it's online. It's like, that's so yeah. strange. That's the government for you, I guess. Right. <laughs> you know? Well, um, and how but, do you feel about yeah, third party if, entities that are like coming in and saying, hey, we'll register your work for you. You just pay us. And I'm thinking, how hard is it to go to the Library of Congress website? It's not. It's simple. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. It's a lot of people that struggle with this kind of thing. And it's, it's a part of my practice where I will, you know, you can pay me to register your works for you and I'll happily do it. You know, but so you're charging in a lawyer fee by the hour, right? <laughs> I, I am. Yeah. Yeah. So you really got to think about where your money's going. But if you're listening to this podcast and SR and, and PA and all these terms are confusing to you, come talk to me or come talk to a, you know, talk to a music lawyer and at least get more understanding about what you're supposed to do. And then if you can do it on your own, do it on your own. If not, yeah, I mean, hire somebody to do it. Sure. Yeah. I think that, I think that's part of the intimidation factor though, to what some people won't do it by themselves, even though it is pretty straightforward as you're doing it, you have to be at least a little bit aware of some of these legal terms. And as you're making all these, at the time feels like life and death choices, right? As you're filling out forms and things, people would rather not like, oh, I'm, I'm scared to do it. I'm just going to ignore it. And then uh, could be possibly a very costly mistake later on. right? But, yeah. And then it never gets done, you yeah. know? There's another thing I would like to ask you again, because we got into it a little bit with the copyright versus the publishing, but something that we hear often like legacy artists and things they're talking about, we now get the right to our masters. That's something that you have talked about as well, the master recording. Can you describe for us a little bit what that actually entails and what that really means? Yeah, so the the master recording is the actual 
sound recording, right? So it's the the file, if you will, <laughs> you know, the the actual the way the sound waves and everything. If you have a composition, you can have multiple master recordings for the same composition for the same song. You know, you just record different versions of it. Record labels don't typically own the composition. That's where publishing companies come in. Publishing companies will own part of the composition, but a record label will own either all or part of the master recording. And then that's where you hear artists saying that they get their masters back. It's because you'll have a record label may own those master recordings sometimes in perpetuity, which means forever. Sometimes they'll own them for 30 years. Sometimes they'll own them for five years. Sometimes it really depends on the size of the label, how much money they're putting up for it, a whole variety of factors. But I've seen anywhere from labels owning a, a master recording from three to five years all the way up to forever, like I said. So that's where an artist can get their their master recordings back, and then they can actually start profiting off the digital downloads, the streams, the actual sound recording itself. But meanwhile, they've most likely been generating money from the composition side. They just haven't gotten anything from the master side. To kind of streamline and put it in perspe in, into perspective for, for newer artists or, or smaller artists, the master recording is basically what you're getting paid from your distributor. If you're using DistroKid or Symphonic Distribution or TuneCore, CD Baby, whatever it is, that's the master right. If you're giving the distributor, you know, TuneCore, you know, takes like five, 10%, something like that. I don't know. DistroKid doesn't take anything. So you're getting 100% of your master rights in exchange for whatever you're paying monthly or yearly, whatever it is. That's where those master rights come into play. So if you sign with a record label, they're going to take 50% of those master rights. So now the money, the penny, the fractions of a penny that you get per Spotify stream are now being split amongst you and the label. So you can see where you're really kind of diluting the pot when you get a label on board. So be careful when you sign a label contract because you want to make sure that they're providing enough value to warrant dropping your share to 50% or 30% or whatever it is the label's taking. Yeah, you know? it's crazy how that all splits out because at some point, I think I did the math and the master recording side, as you're stating, is I want to say 50 to 60 percent of what a streaming royalty setup will pay out. And then on the other 40 to 50 percent left, you've got the broadcast that the sound exchange is paying. You've got the Harry Fox and music reports stuff for yeah, mechanicals mechanical being license. paid. Then yeah. you've got your writer's or writer or writers splitting a certain percentage. And then you've got the publisher splitting the rest of that. So there's like four or five pieces to the rest of that puzzle that the master recording is getting the vast majority of. And that's where a lot and of yet, artists you hear complaining, I'm not making any money. It's because they don't yeah. own their master or they don't own their publishing or their mechanicals or right. I mean, it's ridiculous in the broadcast. It's just insane. Yeah, I had a client recently who he's a producer on a song and they had um, the song is being used in a major motion picture and they were offering $50,000 for the song, which you see that and you're like, wow, $50,000, that's a that's a good chunk of change. But then by the time the label gets a share, the featured artist gets their share, the co-producer gets their share, the publisher gets their share, everybody gets their share. He was only left with like four or 5,000, mm -hmm. you know? That's the reality of a lot of producers, a lot of engineers, a lot of musicians is that there's this big chunk of money, but then the money gets split across a bunch of different avenues. And then you're left with a lot less than what you thought. Everybody's got to get their hand in your pocket. <laughs> yeah, that's that's it. There's all this money being thrown around in the music industry, but somehow it, the musicians don't get any of it. I don't. That's how it goes. It's crazy. Yeah. But one thing that I wanted to ask you, because I, I think it's very valuable, is what do you think are the most common mistakes that writers and producers do when they neglect this whole sort of legal aspect of the music industry and they're just sort of like happy to be there? What are the most common things that you see? The most common thing is just not having agreements with your collaborators. So this is kind of going back to what we talked about at the beginning of the episode is if you're working on a song with somebody, you absolutely should have a deal 
your some kind of agreement together that says this is what I get, this is what you get, these are my these are my rights, these are your rights, you know. And not doing that can lead to so many issues down the line, especially in you know the the music industry moves a lot faster now than it did. 20 or 30 years ago, now you can write, record a song and release it the next day. That song could be out on the internet, blowing up people, everybody listening to it, and you still don't have an agreement with the other collaborators. So I think that's where people mess up is they don't they don't take the time to, to figure out those agreements, figure out those rights, and then stuff starts happening. And then it's a lot harder to negotiate once the song's already out and there's all this stuff happening as opposed to in the beginning when you're still figuring out what you're going to do with it, you know? What genre do you feel has the most lackadaisical version of what you're talking about? Oh, hip hop for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I I do a lot of hip hop. I do a lot of rap. I work with a lot of uh, producers and and rappers and, and artists. And, you know, a lot of times it's still like handshake deals and, people paying in cash for features and stuff like that and then it's real pain to kind of reel that back in and say like okay now we got to do the paperwork and then it's tough too because hip-hop is one of if not the most popular genre so it's like you have a lot of songs that do really well on streaming do really well on the internet and there's just no paperwork there's no i know a lot of artists that are like major major artists with literal gold records, platinum records who haven't even registered some of their songs because they're just lazy or, you know, they don't know, they don't have the knowledge or whatever it is. That happens a lot in hip hop. It's not just hip hop, though. Like there's a lot of that in electronic music, too. I think it, it tends to be with like rock music or something where you have a band, you know, and the band has to come into the studio together and write and record all together. It's a little bit easier to to make agreements as opposed to electronic music or hip hop or stuff made on your computer where you're just kind of sending files back and forth, or there might be five producers on a track, or there might be 10 songwriters on a pop song or whatever it is. It's that's where it starts getting more complicated than with, with bands. I agree Uh, with that statement. I've had two different rappers do this to me where I pull out a split sheet and they agree to it. They sign it. We do the work. They either pay me or they don't for the production time. I've had two of them that have not paid me. And then I had one that told me, I'm going to take the song in a different direction from everything that I did with it in terms of helping rewrite the melody and doing the song split. And then he didn't pay me. This is recent. And I'm waiting to see if he even tries to drop that tune at all because Mm -hmm. I have an agreement. The moment he uses any of it, and I still have all the recordings that we did on the computer of everything we did, it's like if anything matches that, I'm going after him. And I don't think he realizes this. Yeah. I just don't think he realizes. Yeah. No, and I think that happens with a lot of artists, you know, in all genres. Like, they just don't – they don't realize – what they're doing you know like they right. just don't they're not listening to excellent podcasts like this to to get the knowledge you know so unfortunate <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I think, but to uh you know it, it sound or it may sound like you know we're harping on hip-hop or rap here but i think it's obviously it's not that i think it's just that there are several factors that play into that the first one being that it's a relatively young music style it hasn't been through the same sort of growth as jazz or or country or rock has had where it has decade upon decade i think there are other things as well where it's a lot of times it's artists coming up that are generally inner city that are really hungry to do this and it's not for a lack of, of understanding, but it's a, it's just ignorance to the legal aspect of it. And I think a lot of times, just as we're like rock had it in a certain sense, that there's a mentality there where it's basically a big middle finger to establishment, right? So I think a lot of that goes for that, where it's like, no, I, I, I'm not going to do it this way. This is the way we're going to do it. I have that handshake deal with whomever, and they would never screw me. And then money gets involved and they realize the dark, ugly side of of the music industry. I think very similar with electronic music. Perhaps it's dressed up differently, but I think a lot of it is 
in the sense that there's a lot of young people or just individuals where you don't need to have the whole circus around you to create a track. And now all of a sudden your track is out there. And like you said, good luck getting that genie back in the bottle because it's not happening. Right? Yeah. No, I think so, that's, that's totally true. And the, the, the whole part of the ethos of, of hip hop in, in particular is anti-establishment and, you know, right. the middle, the middle finger to the man, you know? So right. a lot of people are kind of miss, they don't really trust the legal side of it, or they don't, they don't care about it because they're, they're just doing their thing and they're breaking the rules. And that's part of what makes it cool is that they're breaking the rules and they're doing right. their own thing. But yeah. There's a right way and a wrong way. Is anybody really breaking the rules differently anymore? <laughs> and the irony, of course, with, with hip hop would be that a lot of times it's about how much money I'm apparently not making now, right? So <laughs> Yeah, that's that is that is true. You know. I've had a I've had a couple artists shout me out, not not by name, but just like they shout out like their lawyer and the song, and that always makes me happy. You know. Oh, that's, that's cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Don't hear about that very often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess we should do like in the show notes and stuff, Jody, we should get your info there out to everybody, Randy, so we could we could link you there if people want to get in touch with you. But is there any links that you just want to give out at the end of the podcast here type of thing? Or Yeah, I mean, I'm um, at Randy Ojeda Law on all the platforms. So that's R-A-N-D-Y-O-J-E-D-A-L-A-W. Yeah, at Randy Ojeda Law. Um, you can also follow me on my personals at Real Randy Ojeda. But yeah, Randy Ohada Law, RandyOhadaLaw.com. Wherever you want to interact with me, I'm on all the platforms. I'm happy to chat, you know. And uh, if you mention this podcast, I will actually give you a free consultation. So even if you're, you know, kind of unsure about what a music lawyer can do for you, just reach out to me. I mean, I'm, I'm always happy to chat with, with artists, with engineers, producers, whatever you do in the industry. You might not need me now, but it'd be great to build a relationship, get to know you, and then... If you need me in the future, I'm around. That's awesome. You can't beat that right, right there. That's an awesome yeah. offer. <laughs> I don't know of any attorney that's ever done that for me. Yeah. So, no, I'm a, yeah. I, I work with independent artists. So I, I have to I have to be a little generous with my time sometimes just because I know nobody's really making millions yet that I'm working with. So I'm trying to trying to help you get there. Yeah. And, and you get paid Sweet. an exposure, just like all other musicians. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, man, that was too good yeah. right there. Uh, for the shout outs that you've even gotten on the records without being named yeah. by name, my lawyer. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, just, you know, shout me out in your in your songs and we'll, we'll call it even. Oh, that's awesome. So is there anything else that, that you'd like to go, Jody, or uh, any questions for – should we well, just – Thank Randy for his time. I think that's a good, yeah, I think we should thank Randy for his time. That was an awesome interview. I think he gave a lot of great information. I think the people that had requested legal information in the past, I think we covered all the things that they were asking about, even though we gave similar answers. We You got it straight from a lawyer's right. mouth now. Yeah. I charge and a lot of money for such, this. So, so, you know. Yeah, no, no, thank you very much, Randy, for doing this. So uh, just to end up, you can take part in this if you'd like, but we usually end up with a segment that I'm going to introduce today, I guess, because it just kind of fell onto me, that we call Friday Fine. So Jody, should we start with you today to mix it up? Sure. I'm going to go with the Copyright Alliance. They are doing a seminar on January 24th, 2024. It's not the first time they've done this, but it's the one coming up. If you're listening to this in a timely manner, when the episode is released, they are doing a Music Royalties 101 seminar. And if you go to the copyrightalliance.org website, you can register for that. I believe it's free. And you can learn some more about music royalties other than what you just learned today. Chris, what about well, you? You stayed on topic there. I will not. I'm going to stay on topic of I the did. gear here because I just realized that SoftTube <laughs> have released a Mark III of their console. So the new uh, console from uh, SoftTube is out and it's, you know, a control surface and it looks like it's implementing a, a slightly different workflow that actually looks really, really cool. So that's my Friday find. So now I'll throw it over to Randy and put him in the spot here and see is there anything that new that you have discovered here this week that has been helpful to you? 
Um, I'm going to do two things. So first, this isn't necessarily new to me, but it might be new to you. I highly recommend the Mechanical Licensing Collective, the MLC. So they have a website, themlc.com, and they can actually help you collect for, for totally free. They can collect your mechanical royalties that you're missing. And they actually have a search option where you can search yourself as a songwriter and see what mechanicals you might be missing. So I highly recommend the Mechanical Licensing Collective. It's a great organization, nonprofit. They do a great job of, of helping you discover missing royalties. So definitely shout out to them. And then my other... Before you go on to your yeah. second point, I want to actually second that. I was waiting with bated breath when the MLC actually got together because I helped lobby for that right. thing. Because prior to the MLC, it was scattered amongst several entities like Music Reports and Harry Fox and whatnot. And you had to find your NOIs. And then you had to hope that you could register with them because oftentimes they wouldn't let the individual artist register with them despite them collecting those mechanicals. Yeah. Yay. There you but go. Good no, for you. <laughs> no, no, that's that. That's it. Yeah. The, the, the MLC is a great organization. So I'm glad you're glad you're familiar with it. And hopefully, you know, listeners are can get familiar with it, too. Um, my other thing was I was just going to shout out a couple of bands that have released new music that I that I like. There's a band called Bodega from New York who um, have a new album coming out this year. They're one of my favorite bands. They're actually coming to Tampa, Florida on tour, which is rare because a lot of people skip Florida altogether. And I don't blame them, but they do. <laughs> so shout out to Bodega. I'm going to see them live when they come to Tampa for sure. Also, there's a new album coming out from Waxahachie, which is another one of my favorite bands. They have a new single with NJ Lenderman on it, who's another great guitar player. So just shout outs to a couple of things I'm listening to now. That Those are my Friday finds. Awesome. While we've got your attention, we ask that you go to InsideTheRecordingStudio.com and sign up for our mailing list. You'll need to be on our email list in order to be eligible for any future giveaways. And we'll make sure you don't miss any future episodes of this awesome podcast. Send us an email at goldstar, G-O-L-D-S-T-A-R, at InsideTheRecordingStudio.com with the phrase music law, and you'll get something cool back in your inbox. If you have a topic or suggestion for Chris and I to explain in a future episode, contact us at the contact page and we'll put it into consideration for a future episode. With that, I'll say see you next. Thanks again, Randy. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye.